I want to bring you up to date with uh, what is uh, happening with our brother in Christ, uh, Manuel Asuna. Uh, last, uh, last Wednesday, last Tuesday and Wednesday, uh, Pastor James and I uh, went to Phoenix to, uh, to see Manuel because he was, uh, he was put in hospice care at his home. And so we went and visited with him and his, and his wife and his family. And uh, they haven't given him a lot of time. But uh, when we saw him, he was uh, you know, somewhat lucid. He knew who we were and he thanked us for coming to see him. Uh, he's suffering from cancer that uh, uh, all of a sudden in recent weeks uh, took a bad turn. Anyway, uh, the family was going to try to have their Christmas this past Saturday because they didn't know if he would make it to Christmas or not. Uh, but he did. But this afternoon, I, I received a call from uh, Andy Dominguez, who is a, another Calvary pastor who is actually a dear friend of ours altogether here. We've uh, known Andy for a long time, and Andy... Uh, has been asked by uh, Manuel to take over the church in, in Phoenix that he has. It's actually in Peoria, uh, Peoria, Arizona. Uh, but anyway, I got a call from Andy today to let me know that uh, Manuel was, uh, was uh, taken from his home to the hospice care center because his, uh, his uh, organs are beginning to shut down. So... Um, Recently, he had uh, mentioned to his wife that uh, uh, when the time came that he wanted uh, Pastor Bob and uh, Ortega from Calvary de Las Cruces and, and I to, to handle all of the uh, uh, memorial services or the service that we'll be doing for, uh, for him. And, um, and we've been helping the family along as much as we can from here. So we ask that you would please keep uh, Maria and Emmanuel and, and their family in prayer. Uh, this is the realities that we face uh, with the uh, fallenness of this world and the things that, that we are still subject to. We've prayed. Emmanuel believed that the Lord would heal him and gave him a lot of extra time to do a lot of stuff that uh, he's prepared his family for, his church for. And, uh, but uh, at, at, this, uh, at this time, he, he's, he's ready uh, for whatever the Lord has. So if you'll join me in a word of prayer, and we'll get, uh, get started immediately into our, our study here in just a moment. So please join me in a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for Manuel and his life that, uh, that he has shared with us for over 30 years here with our ministry and his. And uh, Lord, the very heart that he had to uh, preach the gospel and to teach the word of God, to teach your word, Lord, with all of his heart, with a passion, Lord, that, uh, that extended to those who needed to know you. And, and I know that uh, in his ministry, he's led so many people to you. We pray, Father, that you would continue his vision 
in his church with Andy and uh, Delfina and uh, uh, with Maria, Lord, uh, Father, be Father, be her care and her uh, uh, her strength and uh, her protection and all of these things and all the things that we today are are giving, uh, Lord God, up to you. Uh, and we ask, Father, for wisdom and grace. We pray, Father, that, uh, Lord, you will give us words when the words are appropriate and necessary and needed uh, to comfort the family as well as the many friends and, and brothers and sisters that Manuel has in the church. And we're, we're thankful, Father, for this privilege to serve you together in the ministry of the gospel. May that continue, Lord God, in our hearts and even here. And we ask you, Father, to encourage us as we come to your word this evening to, Lord, be shaken by it, but, Lord, to be stirred to, this, to the extent that we will desire with all of our hearts to to love you passionately, to serve you passionately, and to never leave you, Lord God, but to stay, Lord, right in your, in your hands and in your care. And Father, we ask that by the anointing of your Holy Spirit, you will teach us this evening the things you would have us to know. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Now, let me make one comment before we begin. Uh, it was very necessary for me to go out of town last week. And, you know, in my view of things, I, you know, I like to keep the train running, you know. So as far as what we're doing in the book of Revelation, and that's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to continue. And as long as I'm here, that's what we're doing on Wednesday nights. But I have to tell you, there's something that bothered me very much, and it bothers me still to this day, that... Some people, and I don't, I, I don't know who, all right, certainly none of you here, but uh, some people, you know, if they find out that I'm not going to be here, they don't come to church. And you know, that really bothers me. It bothers me because I don't come here for me, I come here for the Lord. And we need to come here for Jesus Christ. And God's give us, given us pastors that study the Word and are prepared to take my place here at the pulpit when I'm not here to teach you the Word of God. But we come to worship the Lord, and part of worship is 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 just being in obedience to God. So I got to tell you, uh, I'm, you know, I, I'm, I was ready to find a bat somewhere, you know, hit somebody on the head. It's not supposed to happen that way. It's not supposed to be calling. Is Charlie going to be here? Is he teaching Revelation? You know, if, even if I don't teach Revelation tonight, we're here to hear from God. You, you understand that, right? So please understand my heart. Am I a little bit uh, upset? Yes. I do get upset. I'm human. But I have a passion for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to have a passion for Him. Not for me, but for Him. So, understand. Okay? Alright. I got it off. Off my chest. I feel better now. Alright. Now I won't get mad at you all at all tonight. Because you're here. That's what matters. Revelation chapter 2. first seven verses 
deal with the church of Ephesus. I'm not going to go into any details of what we've gone through already. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about, generally speaking, what the messages of the churches are all about. How these seven churches are representative of all churches and of all times. The messages are given for all the church, all the body of Christ. It reflects some of the characteristics, if not all the characteristics, of all churches at all times. Now, prophetically, there are those who would teach that the seven churches uh, kind of give us a, a history throughout the 2,000 years or so of the church uh, and the various time frames that uh, go along uh, with, the, uh, with the church. For example, some people believe that being that Ephesus is the first church mentioned, that uh, they represent the early church up until about uh, 300 A.D. or so. Uh, it's possible, there, there's some things that we can get from that, uh, but uh, not, it doesn't fit in every, in every category or in every uh, time frame of history. So we'll talk about that as we go along. But it, it still is a prophetic book. And what we see happening in Ephesus is happening in, in the church in various places in the world today. So please understand that prophetically, we're going to deal with it historically, prophetically, and individually. Those are the three categories that we'll be seeing all the churches as we get to them. But let's begin by reading now the message that Jesus Christ has given to John to write down to give to the churches, and in particular the church of Ephesus. So tonight, verse 1 says, Unto the angel, or the messenger, or the pastor, as it were, of the church of Ephesus, write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. He says, I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles, and are not, and hast found them liars. And has borne, and has, and has patience, and for my name's sake has labored, and has not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove the candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of, the, of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now I'm sure you'd all agree with me that when we see a house, <coughs> excuse me, when we see a house that has shattered windows, paint that is peeling off, shingles that are dried out, grass that is overgrown and plants and shrubs that are untrimmed, 
We could say without hesitation that these are all signs that this home has lost its life. And you'd agree that a house is not always a home. This house might have had at one time the sound of laughter from a young married couple along with the voices and cries of babies and children filling the air. A family was growing and working and playing all the while bringing life into this home. For years it may have provided comfort and and fond memories for a couple that is now elderly. But now it stands uninhabited, it stands abandoned, unoccupied, even desolate. And what a sad picture from a home with life to a shell of a house. A home has life. A house is just a house. And when it's abandoned, it's just a shell. It sounds tragic, but a house that has become lifeless cannot compare with the tragedy of a church that has become loveless. The warmth of the fire that once burned bright for Jesus Christ had all but died out in that church of Ephesus. That statement alone should cause us to ask this question of ours, of ourselves personally. Is our fire for Jesus Christ dying out? Has our fire for Christ died out? Will we allow that fire to die out in our hearts at any given time? Now please understand that we're going to learn about the church of Ephesus in John's time and that what we learn about that church is quite significant. Because here was a church that remained doctrinally orthodox. In other words, it stayed true to the scriptures. Doctrinally, it was orthodox. It remained active in evangelism. Evangelistically, it was active. It stayed socially responsible. It cared for the poor. It cared for the people. It took care of needs. And yet all the while, had not maintained its deep devotion to the Lord. In other words, this church didn't leave the Lord for idols. It didn't become liberal in its theological positions. They never really did quit working for the Lord. They just simply left their first love. Jesus Christ. Now can you imagine that? You could do all things right, and your heart can be far from where God wants it to be. That's quite a dilemma, folks. If we listen carefully to what we heard Jesus say to this church, we could be in church, working in church, doing things in church, and still be far from God. And our love can be cold. As mentioned previously, there is a format, seven key elements that we will follow as we examine each of the messages to the churches of Revelation Revelation chapters 2 and 3. There is the salutation, and we're going to cover every one of them here in the church of Ephesus. 
a salutation. There's Christ's identification as sender. There's a statement regarding the condition of the church. We can call that a uh, commendation in this case. Uh, Then there is the comment and exhortation, which can be a condemnation, which we'll see in the church of Ephesus. And then there is a promised or threatened coming. And then an admonition to heed. In other words, an admonition to listen to what Jesus has to say to the church. And then a promised blessing. All seven of these elements work in the church of Ephesus. So we want to get to the salutation first and foremost. And it's in verse 1, of course, of Revelation chapter 2. And I've underlined the part that says, Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write. So that's the salutation. Write to this church of Ephesus. These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Now, obviously, the message is to be written to the messenger, the angelos, from which we get the word angel, or pastor of the church of Ephesus, because it's really talking about the one who gives the message and presents the message to the church. And then it is given to the church of Ephesus. Now, here in Asia Minor, in this place called Ephesus, the name itself is kind of important. It it, it has some significance. The name Ephesus means desirable one. It it means a darling or maiden of choice. And Ephesus was the commercial center for Asia Minor, having a population of some 500,000 people at the time. It was a seaport city in which many trade ships came in and out of its harbor. Ephesus also had a highway that, that led to Rome. The highway itself was, was not only used to transport merchandise, but also to transport Christians to Rome to be martyred for their faith. As a matter of fact, a Christian historian named Ignatius called this Ephesian road the highway of martyrs. It was truly a gateway to Asia, as we shall see when we get to the other churches. But in the aspect of religion, Ephesus was known for its worship of Artemis, which was actually the Greek goddess, Artemis. The Romans worshipped the same goddess, but it was named Diana by the Romans. The temple of Diana, in fact, was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Uh, there's an artist's rendition of that here for us to look at. And uh, so you can see how many, many columns this particular temple of Diana had. Now, there is a, a, a modern uh, reconstruction not on the site, but there is a modern reconstruction that gives us a fairly good detail of, of the temple of Artemis or the temple of Diana in this one. you notice again the columns, kind of pretty. <laughs> if you're into columns, got plenty of them. 
But uh, this is the excavation. These are the ruins of the temple of Artemis or Diana, and it's not much left there. Well, its length, its length of this, this particular temple was 425 feet long and 225 feet wide, with 120 columns that were some 60 feet high. The temple itself housed hundreds of priestesses who were nothing more than temple prostitutes, which actually makes sense when you understand that Diana was the goddess of sex and fertility. And that was what her worship was centered around. Her worship was centered around sex, and it was centered around fertility. Another interesting tidbit about this temple is that any criminals who could make it to this temple would be safe within its walls. Well, that kind of is, that sounds kind of interesting to us in this day and time when law doesn't mean a whole lot to a lot of people. And that we can actually at times when there should be laws being you know, enforced for those who, who break laws, we have places where there are refuges, or refuges, or refuge cities, I should say, uh, where people could go and, and, and not have to be prosecuted for certain things. Now that, that happened a lot too, but it just kind of gives an indication, you know, how little importance law takes precedence over today. Well, with that in mind, from these things we can see that the city of Ephesus was truly immoral and it basked in its idolatry. And these things dominated its religious and social life. Also to be noted was its Roman amphitheater that could hold 25,000 people and had an acoustical design that eliminated the need for a microphone, uh, which was pretty important since they didn't have microphones in those days. So the design was very important. And uh, by the way, those, those Roman uh, theaters that we saw in Israel, or those that have been to Israel, uh, they had the very same kind of design. That you can actually stand in those, in those theaters and be heard at every, from every, in every seat from every direction. So quite interesting, the, uh, uh, the design and the architecture and all. By the way, it was probably there at this amphitheater that we're talking about that the Apostle Paul caused quite an uproar as recorded in Acts 19 where a silversmith named Demetrius gathered together all the craftsmen of silver of Ephesus in opposition to Paul's preaching because he was turning idol worshippers to Christ. He was bringing a whole bunch of people to Jesus and the converts were no longer buying the idols. So they went into a rampage, you know, about what Paul had been preaching. And it got so bad that they seized Gaius and Aristarchus, who were Paul's traveling companions, and they brought them to the amphitheater. And for two hours they cried out, Great is Diana of the Ephesians! You can read that in Acts 19 tonight. But, but here's the thing. It, it, just, it just went on for two hours. Can you imagine? Just like a rock concert. And they kept saying the same thing over and over and over and over. Great is Diana of the Ephesians! Uh, maybe one day we'll see the video. But the light of God had indeed pierced the darkness. Ephesus was a dark place. 
And the light of God pierced that darkness. Apollos, you've heard of Apollos in the scriptures? He was a Jew from Alexandria, but he spoke of his faith in Christ in Ephesus. And some 43 years before John wrote the letters to the churches of Asia, Paul visited Ephesus and spent some three years teaching the things of God. Let me read a portion of Acts 19 to you, verses 8 through 10. And again, these are all things of great importance for us to understand the church that was built there in Ephesus. It tells us that Paul went into the synagogue because they had Jews in Ephesus. And everywhere there was a synagogue, Paul would always go to the synagogue first. So he went into the synagogue and he spake boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. Oh, I should be showing these things to you, shouldn't I? I guess, well, there, there it is. I didn't even press a button. But uh, when diverse uh, were hardened, when diverse people were hardened, and believed not, but spake evil of, the, of that way before the multitude, he departed from them, and he separated the disciples, disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannus. And this continued by the space of two years, so that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. So it says in the space of two years, but, but that includes a lot of other time spent before and after. So it was about three years that Paul was there. Now, Timothy, Paul's son in the faith, was the first pastor or bishop in the church of Ephesus. And after his release from Patmos, John spent his remaining years in this city. So again, you, you can see there's a tremendous Christian influence in the city of Ephesus. And so the church in Ephesus had a good start. And the light of Christ shined brightly in this wicked and immoral society. It was seen that the name of Ephesus, which means desirable one, was appropriate in that the people of the church had at one time a great zeal for the Lord and for doing the work of Christ there. There, uh, They were a light and people were drawn to them and, and thus they were drawn to Jesus Christ. And so, in essence, uh, they, they had, the church had become the desirable one, but they were pointing people to the true desirable one who is Jesus Christ. And you see, their love for Christ in doing these things and for, and for others spread and, and other, others desired to have what they had. They had Jesus and that's what they wanted. And, they, and so they, they were a, a very strong church in the sense of of, of showing and sharing the light of the glory of Christ. So, the letter first goes to Ephesus, and then comes Christ's identification as sender, as we see in verse 1 again, the underlying part, portion that says, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, and who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Now, the description of Jesus in, the, in this letter points out that he is holding the seven stars in his hand and he's walking among the seven golden lampstands. Now, from what we learned at the end of chapter 1, is, which is where we understand and know what the seven stars are and what the seven candlesticks are or the seven lampstands. From what we learned at the end of chapter 1, the stars represent the pastors of the churches. And thus this letter is given to the pastor of the church in Ephesus to be read to his congregation. Now, this description also emphasizes the authority of Jesus in the church as well as his immediate presence in the church. 
So, so, so again, he holds the seven stars. Whoever is the messenger, whoever is the pastor, whoever is the servant that is to give forth the word of God, Jesus holds them. Jesus chooses them, He holds them, He guards them. He has authority over them. Do you, do you all understand that picture? Jesus has the authority over the pastors of the church. Not the other way around. The pastors don't hold Christ in authority. Christ holds the pastors in authority. Do you, do you all understand that picture? Yes? Okay. And then, again... The being in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks is that he is in his immediate presence among the church. So in effect, Jesus Christ is to be central to the church and should be recognized as such. Now consider, if you will, Ephesians 1 verses 19 to 23. I I crammed all the words in this slide. So, uh, you know, don't look up here, look at your Bibles. That's, that, that's the whole point now trying to get you to look in your Bibles but the reference is Ephesians 1, 19-23 and this is Christ being central to the church why? because notice what it says what is the exceeding greatness of His power to us who believe according to the working of His mighty power which He wrought or He fashioned in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and set Him at His own right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and has put all things under His feet and gave Him to be the head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him that filleth all in all. Now, we get another uh, passage of Scripture in in, uh, Colossians chapter 1 verse 18 that tells us that Jesus is the head of the body of the church. Who is the beginning? The firstborn from the dead. That in all things, now notice, in all things, he might have the preeminence. Jesus Christ is to have the preeminence in all things in the church. He is to be central to the church. He is to be central in the church. He is to be central by the church. He is to be the very center of the church. With that in mind, the churches belong to Jesus, not its leader, not to its leaders or the people of the churches. Now I mention it that way because you see there there are some basic governmental issues in the churches nowadays and and it's been going on of course we try to stay as biblical as we can but uh, there are some churches that are that are elder led and there are some churches that are congregationally led but uh, all that in mind the church doesn't belong to the church or to the people the church belongs to Jesus The church does not belong to its leaders. The leaders, the people, and the church belong to Jesus. And we have to keep that idea and understanding in mind. It is Jesus who holds them securely. If man tries to hold the church, he's not going to hold the church very securely. Why? Because he's man. He's he's human. He makes mistakes. He He can go off the deep end from time to time. We hope not. That's why leadership needs to surround leadership with each other so that we can, you know, together pray for each other and help each other and help the church and, and the church help us in prayer and all of that. So, you see, it, 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 because it all belongs to Him. If we entrust the church to Jesus Christ, we're going to be safe. And we want to be safe, don't we? 
Church wants to be saved. So we have to entrust it to Jesus Christ. It's His. So He has to be at the center of all things. Then we come to the next uh, element of, of the letter. And that is the statement regarding the condition of the church, which we will call the commendation in this case. It is a commendation. And it's in verses 2 and 3. Jesus says now to the church of Ephesus, I know thy works. Now stop there and think about this. Jesus knows the work of every church. He knows what goes on. There's nothing that we can hide from Jesus. And by the way, in the church, there's nothing that we want to hide from Jesus. Right? I mean, we don't have any secret societies in the church. If we do, there's something wrong. No, we're, we open the door for everyone to come in. We don't, we don't hide anything from anybody. The only thing we do hide, by the way, just so you all will be clear, is that when there is counseling that takes place, that's confidential. No one else knows about it. That's, but, but when it comes to the church, uh, you know, and it comes to the Word of God, nothing is hidden. You know, uh, we don't we don't have a uh, meeting on Wednesday night where we come to church and sit down here. We all worship together and all. And then on Thursday night, we come together and we put funny hats on and, uh, you know, do secret handshakes and all of that. That's 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 the world. That's not the church. Y'all, you get the picture, right? OK, so I know thy works. Jesus knows the works and thy labor. That's a very interesting word. The, the word labor there. And we'll talk about it in just a moment. And the Lord knows the patience of the church of Ephesus. And how the church of Ephesus couldn't bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not. In other words, there were some who called themselves apostles and they tested them. With the word of God, they tested them and they found that they were not really apostles. Found them to be liars as a matter of fact. And has borne and has patience and for my namesake has labored and has not fainted. You know, I, I, uh, I think we would all like to have a commendation like that. Written down about us. I think we all would like that. That we might be remembered that way. Now something that we need to remember, and this could be a very good thing or it could be a scary thing. But it's this, God knows our works, but He also knows the motivation behind that work we do for Him. See, that could be a good thing, or it could be a scary thing. He knows my works, but He also knows my motivation. He knows your works, and He knows your motivation. He knows whether you are motivated or not. He knows these things. The word that Jesus used for labor is the word kopos in the the Greek. And it literally speaks of working to the point of exhaustion. He says, I know your works. I know your labor. I know that you work to the point of exhaustion in the ministry. In other words, the members of the church of Ephesus gave their all in what they did. And he commends them. This is the the commendation part of it. He commends them. 
They were a church that had spiritual discernment. They didn't bear people that were evil or false. They checked it all out, and if, they didn't, if, if those people didn't stand up to the Word of God, they said, hey, you got to get out of here. Because you're trying to bring false teaching into this church. We won't stand for it. They actually took Paul's warning seriously. Paul gave this warning, by the way, in Acts chapter 20, to the elders of the church of Ephesus before he departs from them. And he says to them, for I know this... Let me get there. Acts 20, verses 29 through 31. For I know this, that after my departing... Now, why does Paul know this? Because Paul is filled with the Holy Spirit. He is inspired by the Spirit of God at this time to speak these words that become Scripture to us. He says, I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. See, that's the danger with false teaching. That's the danger with, with, with uh, false prophets and false apostles. And he says, also of your own selves shall men arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. People rise up in churches all the time and they go around and they, they start telling people, you know, the pastor did this and the pastor did that. Well, you know, the thing that the pastor said, he's really off the mark here. You know, uh, hey, why don't you come to my Bible study and, and let's, you know, kind of, let's, let me go over that with you. They be careful about that, folks. People are trying to, you know, take their own disciples out of the church. Therefore watch, he says. And remember that by the space of three years, I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. Now that tells us that Paul was there for three years. Ceasing not, he says, to warn everyone night and day. He ceased not. He, he told them every day. He, he met with them as often as he could. With tears even. Watch. Be careful of what you're getting and what you're hearing from others. So they had patience and they persevered. This church of Ephesus, they wouldn't give up in their work. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) They wouldn't give up in their work. They were steadfast in what they did. When the going got tough, they kept going. When the pressure was on, they didn't try to find a way to turn it off. They forged ahead in the work that was before them. They stood against evil and immoral lifestyles. You know, they never played church, really. The church of Ephesus lived by the exhortation given by Peter in 1 Peter 1, verses 13 through 16. When he said, wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober. In other other words, you know, tie them up, get, get, I mean, get ready Be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust of your ignorance, or in your ignorance, but as he which has called you is holy, so be ye holy. In all manner of conversation, because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. They lived by that. Believe that that's how they needed to live. So you say, this is a tremendous commendation. What could be wrong with this church? What could be wrong with these who have stayed true 
to the doctrines of the, of the Word of God. Staying true to the Holy Spirit. Staying true to the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What could be wrong? Yet, Jesus gives him a condemnation. This is the comment and exhortation here now. In verse 4, he says, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee. Because thou hast left thy first love. Wow. That's powerful. When you look at this church, you can easily see that they were busy. They were active. They did all kinds of work to the point of exhaustion without giving up. And they may look good outwardly. Nevertheless, Jesus used the word, nevertheless. Why this rebuke? I mean, what happened to their fervent love? What happened to that love that they had for Jesus from the very beginning? What happened to it? Because that's what he says. He says, you have left your first love. You'll notice that he didn't say you have lost it. He didn't say you lost it because, you know... Sometimes we lose things inadvertently. I, I, I lose things all the time. I lost them today. I was looking for I couldn't find them. I couldn't find it at all. I looked all over the place. I wanted to find it, but I couldn't find it. I just lost it. Sometimes I lose my marbles, I guess. Have you seen my marbles anywhere? No, no, no. Sometimes we lose things, but when we leave something, we leave it by choice. Something happened, and we, choo- we chose to, do, to, to walk away. Now you notice, the activity continued. But the motivation had changed. What happened to their fervent love? They were, they were going through all the motions without any emotion. Now I want to make something very clear. I think that Christians need to be emotional believers. Now listen to me carefully. I don't think that Christians should be emotionalistic. In other words, letting the emotion drive us. And, and oh, I heard this and I heard that and I saw this and I saw that. No, we need to be emotional from the standpoint that we need to have a heart that is filled with a passion and love for Jesus Christ. And we're driven in a sense by that. Not, I don't like the word driven that much, but you know, we have to have something that, that moves us and motivates us. And it has to always remain the love of Christ. It is very easy to say, you know, I like what I'm doing, I like the work. And all of a sudden the work becomes why you're motivated and not the person for whom you're working. That can happen to us in the church. And so they had forsaken their first love. They left it. And that's how Jesus put it. They left their first love who is Jesus, even as the children of Israel have forsaken the God of their youth. And I'll quote something from Jeremiah in a moment. 
But the Lord says, hey, I, I wish you were like you were when you, were, when we, when, when you first came out of the, you know, uh, brought you out of Egypt. And you had this, this love for me. And, and, and then I took you and I gave you my law. And, and you had this love for me. And then all of a sudden, where were you? What happened? I hate to say sometimes, but what happened is we grew up. Now we need to grow up spiritually, yes. But we always need to remember that we're also children of God. And He still calls us that. We're still His children. Though we need to be mature, we need to be dependent upon the Lord. You see, in the world, when we grow, quote-unquote, mature, we grow to a point where we say, I don't need my parents anymore. I don't need what they do for me anymore. So I'm no longer dependent upon them. Now I am independent. But as believers in Jesus Christ, we don't grow away from the Lord who who gives us what we need spiritually. We grow more and more into Him so that we become more dependent upon the Lord even though we are more mature in Christ. I think I've said this recently, but I tell you what, the more I'm in the Lord, the less I feel I know. And I need Him more to assure me that I'm still in the right place and in the right direction. And headed that way. I don't kick back and say, man, I've been in the Lord for 40 years. Hey, I know everything. I don't know everything. I'm finding out I don't know as much as I need to know. So I got to keep studying, and I got to keep reading, I got to keep praying, and I got to keep asking the Lord, Lord, don't let them, don't let those marbles go away, because I need to keep my focus. And but it's it's not so much what's up here; it's right here. It's in the heart that I need to stay focused with the Lord. Again, notice that they didn't fall out of love with Jesus or lose their love; they laughed it. That's the point that Jesus is making. They didn't fall out of love or lose their love. They left it. And who would know? The Lord would know. That's why He says very clearly, I know thy works, but I also know your motivation. And this passage is all about the motivation. I have someone against you. You've left your first love. Forty years before this, (laughs) excuse me, forty years before this, Paul had written to the Ephesian church these words. Listen to what he said to them. In verses 16 through 19, he says that he would grant you, that God, that the Lord would grant you according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Remember, he's speaking to the church of Ephesus. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be... Oh, notice, rooted and grounded in what? In love. May be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height in every dimension possible. And to know, to know, to know the love of Christ. Now, how do we know the love of Christ? Gnosko, the word there. To know, to, to know intimately and deeply the love of Christ. 
Not just as something that is on the surface, not something that is superficial. It is to know the love of Christ. To know it. To know it when you're worshiping the Lord together with people and to know it when you're all by yourself and there's nobody else around. Guess who's there? The Lord. And your heart just burns with passion for God. To love Him, to worship Him. To offer yourself day by day more and more into the very will of God and the will of Christ. To know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. That's what God wants us to have is the fullness of the Lord in our lives. But if we leave that first love, if we leave it to our own actions, we're like that empty house. Shattered windows, peeling paint, unkempt yard. You know, this love of Christ certainly did motivate them at first, didn't it? When you came to Jesus, man, I tell you what, I, I, I was blessed to come to the Lord in, during the Jesus movement of the early 70s. Man, it, it was a beautiful time, man. We were just in love with the Lord, man. We were on fire. We... We, do what, we just want everybody to know. We did everything we could to let people know about Jesus Christ. I had friends who would tell me, you're just a Jesus freak. I said, I'm praying for you anyway. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they'd cuss at me and do all kinds of stuff. One in particular, I just love that guy. Played football with him. After we got out of high school, told him about Jesus. Stuck it in my face every time, but I didn't care. I still loved that. I told him, I love you and Jesus loves you. I don't care what you say. Now he serves the Lord. Praise the Lord. It, it works, man. I mean, you know, you just got to keep after him. But, but that, those were the days where you were just excited to tell people about Jesus. And this love of Christ certainly did motivate them at first. What they did, they did because of Christ's love and power. What we do is, is we do out of the, knowing the, the love of Christ and his power to overcome things that we know, you know, in the flesh we can't overcome without Him. But, but let me kind of give you a scenario here. Because often times there is a, a second generation that comes out of that, they, that, that may know the love of Christ, but they may not know the, about the power of Christ. And so now, you know, if, if we don't continue to stay after the Word of God, stay teaching the Word of God, generations start losing the understanding. They might know a little bit about the love of Christ, and then, but, but they don't understand the power of Christ. And they have their eyes on other things rather than on the, on the love and power of Jesus. And then comes a third generation that may not even understand either of the love of Christ or the power of Christ. And, and, and really the greatest example of that is in the scriptures and it's the children of Israel. There was a generation that came out of, of Egypt after 400 years of captivity. The Lord took them into 40 years of, of, uh, of wandering in the, in the wilderness. It could have taken them, a, uh, you know, uh, 11 days, maybe a couple of weeks to get from Egypt to the promised land. But because of the, you know, the murmuring and complaining, you know, they were in there 40 years. That's one generation. And two men out of that generation enter in with a new generation into the, the promised land. Caleb, of course, and Joshua enter in. And what happens? 
Well, you know, they go about and, and now with the leadership of Joshua, they, they, they begin to conquer the promised land as the Lord leads them. But you get to the book of Judges, after the book of Joshua, and it tells us that there was a generation after that generation that did not know the Lord. So it happens. It happens. They had the commandments of God. They had the, temp- the, the tabernacle of God. They had what God had told them was representative of Him being in their presence. And they still left and forsook God. So, what would Jesus want from them? The church of Ephesus. And what would Jesus want from us? Turn to Jeremiah 2, verses 1 and 2. We're told there, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and, and cry at the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Thus saith the Lord, I remember thee, thy, the kindness of thy youth, the love of thine espousals, when thou wentest after me in the wilderness, in the land that was not so. And he's reminding them, I, I remember when you were young with me, and, and, and you loved me, and, and you went after me. And this is what the Lord is saying to Ephesus and to us. The Lord wants that newness. He wants that joy. He wants that love that we first had for Him. If you you give the Lord your love, the other things will come. They will flow from that love. If you don't, all the work, all the sweat that comes from the labor will be meaningless to Him. Why do we do what we do for the Lord? Think about it. Why do we do what we do for the Lord? What is motivating our actions? Well, I've got one thought to give you tonight. Let's not become rich in works and poor in love. Let's not become rich in works and poor in love. We need to be rich in the love of God. We need to be rich in our love for God. So it's not about what we're trying to accomplish by our works because sometimes the things that God calls us to do may not, may not give any kind of evidence outwardly but it's the obedience inwardly that He sees and that He commands. Because we do it for love. And just recently we were dealing with this scripture in 2 Corinthians 5 verses 14 and 15. The love of Christ compels us. It is the love of Christ that constrains us. And that's what I wanted to read to you. Because we've judged thus that if one died for all, then all were, were all dead. And, and that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves. That is part of the problem of leaving our first love. Is that we want to get to a place where we want to live for ourselves and not for the one who loved us and died for us and rose again for us. We cannot live unto ourselves. We need to live unto Christ. Why? Because we are dead in Christ. Galatians 2.20 I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. So the church of Ephesus was given this tremendous condemnation. By Jesus Himself. But it doesn't end there as if there is no hope. There is a promised or threatened coming. And that's in verse 5 of our text. 
Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. So now, the church is given an order from Christ. And I want you to see it in a very simple way. Three things to note. He says, remember, remember how things used to be. Remember, therefore, from where you're fallen. See, when you fall, you go down. Well, up here, before you fell, you were at a place with God and with Christ. Remember where you were and remember how things used to be. Remember it. Can you remember that? Can you remember the first day you came to Jesus? You wept because you were a sinner and you realized it. And then he says, but I love you and I died for you and I gave myself for you and I shed my blood to forgive you of your sins. And you received the the truth of Christ and you accepted the, the truth of Christ and you received the Lord into your life and into your heart. And oh, your life was changed, right? You remember that. How many of you remember? If you don't remember, maybe you need Jesus tonight. (laughs) You remember that. You know, there are things, the older we get, we start forgetting things. But that's one of those things that you should never forget. What it was like when you received Jesus Christ for the first time. Remember how things used to be. Secondly, repent, which means turn back to God 180 degrees from the direction you were going and turn back in the direction that you were headed, which was always toward God. Repent. And thirdly, repeat. In other words, do your first works. Repeat what you did before. Remember, repent, repeat. Do the first works. What, were the, what was the most important work you did? It was to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Do you know that that's still the first thing we're supposed to do? We're to love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The warning is simple that Jesus gives. If we don't remember, repent, and repeat, there will be a fourth R, removal. There will be a removal. The light He will remove. That's scary. You cannot tell me that the whole church of Ephesus were unbelievers. No, they were believers. And he says, your light will go out, buddy. I will remove the candlestick out of his place except thou repent. We are to be light bearers of and for Christ. But if we remove him from our lives... The light of Christ will soon go out. And folks, I don't want the light of Christ to go out in your lives or in your hearts. Our witness will be gone. And while people may gather in churches, the light have been turned the lights have been turned off. And so it is imperative that we see the purpose of the church and of us as individuals to hold the light of Jesus for all the world to see. Is this not what Jesus called us to do? Listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. 
He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its savor, this is verse 13 of Matthew 5. If the salt has lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing, but to be cast out and to be trodden underfoot of men. You are the light of the world, notice. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid, neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. And what did Jesus say? But if you don't repent, I'll take the candlestick out. I'll remove it. The light goes out. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Now I'm running a little late, so give me just a few more minutes. We're almost done. We move on to the next element that, uh, that is, is found in all the letters. And that is the element of an admonition. An admonition to heed. It is a, a strong warning to heed what Jesus has to say. But before that, there's something he says in verse 6. Notice verse 6. He gives another little commendation. He says, but this thou hast. This I know you have. That thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Then he says, He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. That's the admonition to heed. Now before the admonition, as I said, Jesus gave one more commendation. The Ephesian church hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Now the Nicolaitans, the word Nicolaitans itself comes from two Greek words. Nikau, which means to conquer, and Laosh, which means the people. So, literally, it means those who conquer the people. Now, this is supposed to be in the church. And, and later on, in another church, the Nicolaitans are mentioned, because that church really fell into the trap of the Nicolaitans. So, understand that this was a leadership that conquered the people, told the people what to do, how to do it, what, you know... And really not by the word of God, but by their own leadership. And that happens a lot today. There is a Christendom that we have to keep an eye out on because people are, you know, I mean, they're putting themselves over the people. They're making themselves as if they're royalty in the church. Nobody's royalty in the church. There's only one king. That's Jesus Christ. You know, what they wear, how they wear it, you know, everything has to be, uh, you know, it shows people looking down on others. That's conquering the people. And Jesus said, no, I didn't come for that. Came, he came to seek to save the lost and to set us free from the bondage of sin and death. Well, part of that is setting us free from people who want to control our lives. So what this is saying is that there were those in the church that were setting themselves above the people, claiming that they were closer to God by their position. And of course that attitude still exists in the church today. So the admonition, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. That is a call for individuals as well as for the church in general to respond and to act on what has been said. Always take heed to what Christ says in His Word and by His Spirit. So notice that He gives that warning. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let him, uh, let him listen and, and hear. And, you know, that's individually as well as corporately. Lastly is the promised blessing. And that's the second part of the verse. 
To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now, this is a tremendous promise because he talks about overcoming. I want you to consider the words of John in his first letter to the church, written before the book of Revelation. And it tells us in 1 John chapter 5, verses 3 through 5, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not grievous, for whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. Whatsoever is born of God. If you're born of God tonight, and just go back to John chapter 1, so you'll know, and, and actually John chapter 3 as well, when Jesus had a conversation with uh, Nicodemus. But the Bible tells us there in John chapter 1, uh, verse 12. Verse 11 says, He came unto His own, and His own did not receive Him. Verse 12, But to as many as received Him, to them gave He the right to become the sons of God. To as many as believe in His name who were born not of the flesh or of blood, but of the Spirit. That's verse 13. So, with all that in mind, just understand that that's what he's speaking of, that whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. Whoever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Our faith, our trust in the Lord, it overcomes the world. And the question is, who is he that overcomes the world? Who overcomes but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. He that believeth with all of his heart. He that trusts in the Lord with all of his heart. He that loves the Lord with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Is the one who is going to overcome. And so there we are told in, in, in Revelation 2.7. To him that overcomes. So the church of Ephesus needed to be awakened to the fact that they did not need to be losing sight of Jesus. And leaving Jesus They needed to return to Jesus. And in returning, they are going to be overcomers. They're going to love the Lord with all their hearts again. And they're going to serve Him again to the very end. And there is no eternal life without the tree of life. And isn't that interesting that he talks about that? He says, to him that overcomes, I will give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. There's no eternal life without the tree of life. And while the tree of life found in Genesis, and eventually we find it in the last chapters of the book of Revelation, that speak of restoration, they speak of eternal life, there could be no eternal life without coming to the tree of life, which was found on Calvary 2,000 years ago. That, if you want to know the, the truth, is the tree of life. Because that's where Jesus died on the cross for our sins. That's where Jesus took our sins and nailed Him on that tree. The place that Jesus paid the penalty for all of our sins is the place where He gives us eternal life. That is the place. And that is His promise. You remember John 14? I go to prepare a place for you. That place is paradise. But until He goes to the cross, there is no paradise. There is no eternal life. There is no hope except in what Jesus does on that cross. And that brings us to 1 John 2.25, and I'll close with this. This is His promise. This is the promise that He has promised us, even eternal life. The church of Ephesus could be a machine of work and labor 
But every drop of sweat that poured out from them without the love of Christ motivating them was useless. So understand then the importance of the, of the message to the church of Ephesus for the church today. It isn't about all, you know, it isn't about all that we, um, that we can do. It isn't about all that we can accomplish in ourselves, in our wisdom. It's all that we can do for Jesus Christ. In the end, that's, what all, that's all that matters. Are we faithful to love the Lord with all of our heart? Because in our faithfulness to love the Lord, we are also putting ourselves in a position to obey Him. If we're faithful to His love, faithful to love Him, then we'll be faithful to obey Him and to do all the things that honor Him and bless Him. And yes, we're going to face times of opposition, but we can face them because He loves us. He loves us more than we love ourselves. He cares for us more than we care for ourselves. And I can assure you, we care for ourselves a lot. Right? We care for ourselves a lot. But He cares for us more. And we need to surrender to that love tonight. And thank God for the love of Jesus. Thank God for His mercies. Thank God that He didn't mince any words either. He went straight to the heart and he says, I have this against you. You've left me. But you return. And you'll overcome. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for...